1: This is the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell,
0: sponsored by Raytheon.
1: Look, there's definitely been a pronounced ground shift in Washington about how China is viewed. I think there is a significant element of it that comes out of the national security community, but I think it's broad based. It's clearly in the trade space and the economic relationship
0: flip to China. The other side. So Yeah. How do they how do they see us?
1: I definitely think they are in the process of changing their view. And it mainly boils down to is the current trade tension with the United States? Is trade war simply a trade war or is it the leading edge of a new Cold War? If we don't find a path by the end of this year to come to some sort of a truce or a negotiated settlement or some sort of a process, then I think these Cold War gears are going to start locking in.
0: Chris Johnson holds the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is widely regarded as one of the best China experts inside or outside of government. Before joining CSIS, Chris served almost two decades as a China analyst at CIA, where he and I worked closely together. This is the second time that Chris has joined me on Intelligence Matters. The first was to discuss Chinese politics and its implications for China's approach to the world. This time, Chris joined me to talk about the critically important U.S.-China relationship and where it might be headed. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters, to modernizing platforms, to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon making the world a safer place. Chris, thanks for joining us today. It is great to have you back on the show. Welcome.
1: My pleasure. Thank you, Michael.
0: You were a guest on the show in December of last year. Right. Coming up on a year now, and quite a bit has happened since then uh, with regard to China. And I think that's perhaps best captured by something that President Trump recently said to Sean Hannity on Fox News. president said, and I'm going to quote him, it is time to take a stand on China. We have no choice. It has been a long time. They have been hurting us unquote. So what I basically want to do, Chris, with you in this episode is really unpack what the President said and what's going on here and i I'd, I'd love to do it at a strategic level because I think it's very easy to go down a whole bunch of different rabbit holes here, yes. About terrorists and economic espionage and economic coercion and the importance of the Chinese market and Chinese industrial policies and influence operations. Influence operations. Right. We could dig into all of that. But I think when you do that, you lose the strategic picture. So I'd love to keep this at the 50,000 foot level. Let's do it. And given that and the place to start, I think, is how each country views the other Mm -hmm. and how that is changing. And if it is changing, why? Mm-hmm. And as we learned as analysts and what we were taught as analysts is countries don't have views, right? People have views. Right. And so there might be different views yes. in the United States about China. And there might be different views in China about the United States. So we Absolutely. can unpack that a little bit. Mm-hmm. So let's start with U.S. views of China. And you know, it seems to me that there's been a pretty dramatic shift over the last – six, nine, 12 months, maybe even longer than that. And I've heard it captured a couple of different ways. One, One way I've heard it captured is from national security experts who said, you know, we used to think that China would become more like us as they got rich, and we were wrong about that. And then another way of capturing it is something that Senator Warner said to me on this very podcast a few weeks ago. He said, and I'll quote him, My views on China have fundamentally changed over the last two, two and a half years. I was two and a half, three years ago, optimistic that there would be some path to coexistence. I am much more concerned right now. Hmm. So that's another way that it gets talked about. So maybe get you talking about U.S. views of China. Mm -hmm. What are they? Mm -hmm. How have they changed and why?
1: Great. I think that's exactly the issue to be focused on is that, you know, this sort of 50,000-foot level because there is, there's a lot of noise out there now about different aspects of the bilateral relationship and what's happening in each country and not a lot of signal the way, I, <laughs> the way I look at it. Or to me, the signals are fairly clear. Look, there's definitely been a pronounced ground shift in Washington about how China is viewed. And I think you've got the timeline roughly right, I'd say, over the last year, maybe even the last two years. And what's been most striking to me is how quickly it's happened how broad-based it is. You know, you highlighted remarks from Senator Warner and also comments from President Trump. So that shows us this is a bipartisan ground shift. I think there is a significant element of it that comes out of the national security community, but I think it's broad-based. It's clearly in the trade space and the economic relationship. U.S. business doesn't feel the way they used to about China. So it's been a sort of fundamental ground shift. There's no question in my mind about that. And if you want sort of an anecdote that I think frames it well, I can remember very clearly, I'd say two years ago, There were a series of things that appeared at that time. There was an article by a prominent China scholar suggesting that the party might collapse. There was an article, a separate thing about questioning the engagement policy that was written. And there was a book written by a sort of more hawkish China scholar that suggested that indeed China has a master plan, basically to undermine the U.S.'s global leadership position. And I remember very clearly the Chinese dispatching lots of people at that time to come over and talk to people like me. And, you know, the idea at the time was, look, three or four people on the margins writing does not a shift in U.S. government policy make. And yet look where we are now. So it's quite striking, I think, the time and the speed with which this has happened. How did we get here? My sense is there are at least three factors, I think, that that have changed in U.S. views. I think the first is that there was a fundamental failure, really, to understand some of the changes that were happening in Chinese domestic politics Going back really arguably into the previous administration of Hu Jintao, where I think in some areas in government and then also in the academic literature for the most part, there was a general assessment that Hu Jintao, the president at the time, was fully in control of the system. They were presiding over a very much a collective leadership system and that they were moving toward what you might call adaptive authoritarianism. In other words, the idea that you mentioned earlier, they're going to become more like us. You know, there's certain things they're not going to be able to do, but in general, they're going to make the system more open, more transparent and so on. The facts are that, in fact, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao's predecessor, was really pulling the strings during most of uh, Hu Jintao's tenure. That meant that the system was not changing as radically as people thought it was. And then Xi Jinping came in, and suddenly it looks like a massive shift from where these people had been before. But in fact, it's, right, it's rather consistent, which is you have one powerful leader who's really running the show— and I think then the, the analytic snapback, if you will, that's had to happen, the pendulum swing for a lot of people, which came through in the 19th Party Congress when she had a big political coup, that means that people have overcorrected. And I think that's important. Mm-hmm. So suddenly all the attention is focused on she. The second sort of change, I think, is there is a real questioning of 40 years of engagement policy. You know, some very prominent people. Next year is the
0: 40th anniversary. Exactly.
1: And several prominent people have been writing articles about this. You've seen them, I'm sure. And the basic idea from what I can see from my readings is that at the end of the day, the engagement policy was a sham. We were misled by crafty Chinese leaders, starting with Deng Xiaoping, who you know, gave all the signals that they were moving in a direction of more openness and more transparency and economic market-based economic practices. And instead, they had a master plan all along, which was to unseat the U.S. I find these arguments to be very wanting, but they are definitely the standard, the sort of conventional wisdom now. And I think that's an important factor. And then I think the third one is a very simple one, but I think a very powerful analytic point, which is that for those 40 years, or at least for most of those 40 years, the economic relationship between the U.S. and China was highly complementary. And that meant that these security tensions that are always there between the We were the capital two of us, rich
0: and they were labor rich and those uh, two things go t- together extraordinarily well. Absolutely.
1: And there was a lot of money to be made. And so when the, the security tensions, which are persistent, Taiwan, now South China Sea, you know, other, other areas, and the differences in our two governing systems, we would have flare-ups occasionally. You and I worked many of them, the Taiwan Strait crises and so on. But the, that economic relationship acted as a ballast, acted as a, a sort of stabilizer, shock absorber. Now the economic relationship has turned competitive. China needs to go exactly where we need to go for their future economic benefit and competitiveness. And most importantly for them, if they want to break through the middle income trap, which they must do if they're going to move up the global supply and value chain and the CCP wants to remain in power, they have to do this. And this is the course that they've charted, which is to go toe-to-toe, with us for those uh, industries of the future. And that's a fundamental change. And it means then that those security tensions that previously were suppressed are also jumping out of the box much more dramatically than in the past.
0: So do you think the shift is overdone? I mean, you said that earlier, right? Um, And and, and, in what way? So those are the views here and how they've changed. What are your views? Yeah. How do you think about China?
1: My sense is is that if you – I just make a plea for objectivity and for consistency in analysis. And so if you look at this over time and you see sort of what the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is as an organization, my own view is much of what they've been doing is highly predictable. And so my concern is not that the questions that are now being raised about China's um, attitudes and interests and, frankly, its practices in, in its Muslim Northwest, in Xinjiang, in other areas, there are serious things for the U.S. to be concerned about but how do we react? Do we do we react with a freakout, which I think is sort of what's happening in Washington right now, or do we react calmly, define what our red lines should be, operationalize those red lines, and get down to the business yeah. of executing so let's, policy?
0: So let's come back to what we should be doing, right? Sure. But but now flip to flip to China. The other side. So yeah. <laughs> so how do they how do they see us? Are there different views there about that? Mm-hmm. How is that changing, and why?
1: Yeah. I definitely think they are in the process of changing their view and it mainly boils down to an assessment on their side or a debate. I think it's still a debate, although I think it's shifting to a to decision a decision within the system. Is the current trade tension with the United States is that simply is trade war simply a trade war or is it the leading edge of a new Cold War? And, you know, what's quite striking to me about it is when I go to Beijing now, I hear this a lot. And, you know, they have dot connectors in their system, (laughs) just like we have dot connectors in our system. I think the difference is their system, in my experience, is particularly prone to this type of dot connecting and conspiracy theory and so on.
0: Over-connecting dots.
1: Over-connecting dots. And I think it's also fair to say that President Xi himself has long held this view about color revolutions and the U.S. wanting to subvert China's system. And that has propagated its uh, way through the system. And when they look at their screen, if you will, it's flashing in a lot of places from U.S. activity, whether that's military, whether it's sanctions for purchase of Russian weapons. You know, we're hearing all sorts of noise about more measures coming down the pike. And so they're beginning to see that perhaps these guys are out to get us. And indeed, everything we've always feared uh, is true. I don't know if that's entirely the majority opinion yet, but it was definitely hotly debated at their leadership conclave this summer, is my impression, And my suspicion is the vast majority of the Politburo now believes this. Are there different camps? I think there are some different camps. I think we clearly saw over the summer a questioning of some of Xi Jinping's approach, primarily in the area of foreign policy policy somewhat in terms of economic policy, and then obviously this issue of his having done away with the presidential term limits and now being able to sort of serve for life. So the the complete abandonment of, of any pretense that they were still under some sort of a collective leadership system. I think that's caused a lot of grumbling. What was striking to me, again, signal and noise, <laughs> yeah. there was a lot of noise about him being on his back foot and so on. But my impression is that uh, no one dares challenge him uh, still at at this point. What they do is there's a lot of private grumbling. And I think this is an important distinction to make because it matters if we don't analyze his domestic position correctly, then our policy can be seriously misaligned with uh, the facts on the ground. So my own sense is that while there is a lot of private grumbling, the issue is not that Xi Jinping is going to fall from power tomorrow or that he's sleeping with one eye open every night. It's that the gap between his views about where the country is headed and the views of his broad elite, let's call them, it's growing. And it's not a problem in the near term, but at some point downrange when he does move along, however that happens, that could cause a real problem when it comes to the succession.
0: So you've been – you've watched this country for a very, very long time, Chris. How, how would you characterize Chinese objectives in the world?
1: Mm-hmm. I think really the China's objectives are pretty straightforward primarily the the main objective they have is to keep the communist party in power uh that's number one everything that that follows so everything they the do, America, including
0: foreign policy everything
1: including foreign policy is about keeping the Chinese Communist party in power and you know we see this particularly domestically when you we look at their industrial policy that is causing so much concern when we look at how they manage the internet, for example, you know these sort of things it's all about control and and keeping the party in power. I think internationally, their approach is, look, they want to be the main power in their region. This is very, very clear in East Asia. That does not mean they want to kick the United States out of Asia. My own view is that what it means is that when country X in the region is about to make a major decision, they want that country's leadership to think about how Beijing might react as quickly as they think about how Washington might react. That's really their focus. And then from there, it begins to broaden out. And I think we're seeing this now that China now has interest to protect across the globe. It did not previously have that. And as they do that, we're seeing their footprint in more and more places. Belt and Road is an obvious uh, expression of this. Some of their other programs. The military
0: bases they're building. Military
1: bases. And for the first time, I think we're beginning to see, after a long hiatus, a suggestion that we have a model here and it works pretty good it delivers results it's one party and it works pretty well and it delivers results and perhaps others might try that
0: is that them selling that or is that other countries looking at them and saying looking at them and then looking at us and saying (laughs) i think it's both i think it's both but
1: i i also think you know there's been a lot of hue and cry about this oh they're exporting their model again last time they did that it was the cultural revolution and you know that was bad right My sense of it is actually one of the things they've been struggling with for over a decade now is they just don't do soft power particularly well. They're bad at it. (laughs) They struggle, I think, culturally and just the way the country has run for the last several years. I don't understand giving something without getting something back, you know, these sort of things. And this is what's causing all the trouble in Africa and, you know, Pakistan and a lot of the other places where there's some pushback to some of their behavior So in some ways, I think this is actually an effort to reboot that effort again to see we got to figure out this soft power thing because look at all the U.S. benefits from having this with very little investment. We work very hard and we get no gain. So they're trying to find different ways. And I think what was most interesting about the ways that they frame it now is this line that says if you're a developing country and you want to develop without interference, nice jab at the West, (laughs) then perhaps our model could apply to you.
0: And then that non-interference is important for them because they don't want anybody interfering with them. With them, correct. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Chris Johnson. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, the bilateral relationship itself. Mm -hmm. So how would you characterize it today? Mm. And can you put it? into historical perspective for mm-hmm. us. Is this the worst that you've seen it? So how do you think about that? Yeah,
1: I think it's pretty bad. And it's very fraught right now. And I think the the biggest concern is what we've just been discussing, which is that, if you will, the gears are starting to lock into place in both leadership's minds, that this is an implacable enemy. This is a global struggle for influence and for maybe domination. And that's different. We haven't seen that for a very long time. I don't think I'm capable of saying it's the worst it's ever been, but it's certainly problematic. And my concern is that what started off as tariffs and trade tensions and so on now seems to be becoming a much larger thing. And, and, you know, some of this is, frankly, the diagnosis that the administration makes of a lot of these problems, which is that, indeed, China's been getting away with murder on some of its economic practices and so on, cyber, you know, you know these areas well. Uh, For some time, those were all true. And so in some ways, the administration deserves credit for putting a finger on it and, and for highlighting it. And we see this in the national security strategy document and in the national defense strategy documents. But that's really it. You know, this is what I call now this new holy trinity, which is that China is a revisionist power practicing predatory economics and a strategic competitor of the United States. When you frame it that way, you're fundamentally changing the view that has dominated our approach to China. And you're doing it in highly authoritative documents. Which on their side of the fence are read in a very particular way
0: is all of this Chris a product of the Trump administration or has it been in train for a long time mm-hmm. and had Secretary Clinton won, we would see a version of this Yeah,
1: I, I think the the structural confluence that we're watching has been coming for quite a while. I mean, it certainly started in the late Obama administration, no question. And, you know, Secretary Clinton, as well as I do, um, I think if she were in office, we would have a very throaty uh, policy toward China. It would not be terribly different. I don't think tariffs would be around, but, you know, things of this nature. We were heading in a direction on this. President Trump has undoubtedly been an accelerant for that process. And I think Xi Jinping on his end has been an accelerant for that process. In some ways, it's intriguing how much the two of them are alike. And I think that probably is, you know, making those tensions seem more How would you say they're alike? Dramatic. Well, they both seem to prefer informal policymaking. There does seem to be a sort of disdain for expertise or at least traditional expertise, you know, in, in the Chinese system, for example, the foreign ministry... You people know, like the, us. Yeah, the commentariat, <laughs> right? You know, these kind of folks, they've been, that process has been short-circuited. You know, Xi Jinping relies very much on informal advisors, and President Trump seems to, uh, to do that, too. I think they're both men who view themselves as agents of history, and that can be challenging in terms of how people think. You, know, you mentioned earlier in our discussion, people matter <laughs> in these things. And um, so they share a certain amount of qualities.
0: Okay, so the future... Mm-hmm. And, you know, not asking you to predict because mm-hmm. nothing's set in stone, mm-hmm. right? And with that in mind and looking out 10, 20 years, a couple of questions. So what do you see is the range of possibilities of where this might end up? And of those possibilities, what's what are the best for us? Yeah. For our interests? Mm-hmm.
1: It's very difficult to see because, you know, I think right now we're in a situation where everything just seems to be... Unraveling, so uh, I think it's causing people who worth the relationship, or or even those who have serious questions about what China is doing, to really ponder. You know, are we now in this you know bifurcated universe? I, I don't think so. You know, my view is there's still an opportunity to sort of craft what we might call a middle solution, and I think the beginning of that is that we have to separate these two main issues um, that seem to be driving the tensions on the economic side. One is what I call the sort of backward-looking, sort of tactical elements. And this is the trade deficit between our two countries and the response, President Trump's response for dealing with that, tariffs. My view is that can be dealt with, actually, fairly easily. The Chinese buy more U.S. goods and commit to do so with some market access opening and so on. That can be dealt with. The other bit, which is the forward-looking strategic or structural component, I think is much harder to deal with, and that is this fight for the 21st century knowledge economy. And they're committed to an industrial policy approach and we're committed to a market-based approach, and that makes it very difficult for our two sides to find a solution. So my sense of it is if we don't find a path by the end of this year, I would say, to come to some sort of a truce or a negotiated settlement or some sort of a process on that piece, then i think these cold war gears are going to start locking in pretty sharply and it will mean that we're going to move increasingly toward what seems an increasingly common or popular idea which is decoupling between the two what does that mean decoupling it basically means that we separate from each other you know the deep integration Coming between less our, dependent on right the deep integration but it's so so You know, Apple is no longer completely dependent on its supply chain resting in China. And China is no longer dependent on the U.S. for, you know, banking and financing and investment opportunities and so on. We basically agree to a divorce. You have your system. It's not compatible with ours. And we're going to get along fine separately.
0: And I think if we had an economist here, they would tell us that. Impossible. Not only very, very difficult, but (laughs) you're going to pay a price if you force that. Of course. An economic price in both countries if you force that. Yes, definitely so. And yeah, there's been will. great, great economic advantage, actually. And there still the, is. There still is. You know,
1: I think my sense of it is, again, this idea of the middle path. One idea of it is we have serious concerns about China's industrial policy, you know, made in China 2025, their efforts to dominate these 11 uh, industries of the future, and, and their published targets for their share of global control, you know, 80, 90 percent of these. We can't abide by that. We can't. But is there a path whereby we get them to contain or constrain, let's call it the toothier elements of that industrial policy that we can live with. I think that's a possible solution to this challenge.
0: And how do Chris, how do we deal with this with this issue of China wanting more influence in the world, mm-hmm. needing more influence in the world to protect its interests which are growing?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we have that influence today, right? And we don't want to give it up. No. <laughs> how does how does that get sorted?
1: Well I think it's particularly challenging. And and I think one of the reasons it's so challenging and this is a legitimate um, critique that the administration has made, and I think they're correct in this, You know, for years and years, either for as an analyst or, say, a business person or anyone dealing with China, there was the opportunity to sort of say, well, I don't like the Chinese Communist Party. They do a lot of things that I don't like and so on, but I work on China, the country. I do business in China. I work on China. Xi Jinping has made that increasingly impossible to make that kind of a distinction. The party is the country. That's how the leadership wants it and because of that then we kind of hear that cold war tape playing in our mind which is okay these guys are communist they have a global agenda and that needs to be pushed back upon in terms of the core question which you identified which is how do we how do we deal with currently having that position i've been surprised just watching over the last few administrations how it seems that the word accommodate is a dirty word <laughs> that there's some notion that we cannot accommodate any of china's ambitions Without somehow feeling like we're being a traitor to our own country, the Obama
0: administration's opposition to the Asian AIB. development bank—yeah, made no sense. Frankly,
1: dumb, dumb move, and we paid a huge price for it. We alienated our allies, and we told the Chinese basically, "You should do more of these things because look at all the destruction it's done, you know, amongst our allies." And, and we didn't stop it. <laughs> that was the other thing. And there's some suggestion now that we're going to do this with Belt and Road that we will come out, you know, and formally oppose Belt and Road. And the magnitude of the policy error. Would be the same as the difference between Belt and Road as a program and AIB as a program.
0: So, are there this concept of a middle road where we can we can still coexist in a way that benefits both of us? Mm-hmm. Are there people in China who sh- who who share that view? Definitely. And, yes. and is is it getting fewer and fewer in both places? I
1: think it's getting smaller. Yeah, it's it's getting harder. You know, I mean, just uh, I was just in China recently, and and my survey of of my contacts tells me that. There are people who say, no, trade war is just trade war. You know, there there's a real problem in our economic relationship. It's structural. These are challenges that we can work with. And then there are people who believe it is this new Cold War. And I'd say that view is winning out. And I think the same phenomenon is playing here. You know, I'm I'm really surprised by how much Washington has become focused on this issue of influence operations and so on. You know, when I was working in the government, um, we didn't care that much about the activities of the United Front Work Department. And I think there's still a reason why we really shouldn't care that much about their activities. Uh, You know, this is not Australia. what do they do? So the United Front Work Department is, of course, the group uh, under the Communist Party whose job it is basically to work on overseas Chinese and get them to support the government, basically. In short, that's what they do. And, you know, look, there was some serious things going on in Australia. You know, they were doing this. But I think it's important for us to remember that the Chinese population in Australia is a much larger portion of a much smaller total population. There were some interesting challenges in Australian campaign finance laws that allowed foreigners to contribute directly to, you know, these elections and so on. We don't have these things in the United States. And from my observations, I do not see, for example, the Chinese diplomatic presence here or even some of their you know, think tanks and so on uh, doing anything like what they were doing down there. Maybe not yet, and maybe that's what the concern is, but I find it over overwrought.
0: And if you're a country in East Asia and you're stuck in the middle here, mm-hmm. Malaysia or Thailand, mm-hmm. how do you think about this?
1: I think they're in a very uh, tough position. I was just speaking at lunch with someone from one of those countries today, and I, I think it's challenging. You know, they're watching... And, you know, look, they, they thrive when there's balance between the U.S. and China and other big powers. They'd like, to, they'd like the Indians in there, too. You know, as many big powers as they can have in the region, their view is that's how their interests get best protected. And when they look at what the U.S. is doing, I think there's, you know, some appreciation. Uh, there's definitely a view that this administration in some ways is taking a harder approach toward the South China Sea, for example, and some of uh, Beijing's other policies. But we're missing the economic component. That's still missing. So how do you have a a policy of a free and open Indo-Pacific with no economic leg? You know, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, all of East Asia, economics is security. So if you're not playing in the economic space, there's nothing for those countries to grab onto. And so I think naturally the drift is China's here. They're always going to be X hundred miles away from me, not X thousand. And I have to
0: make decisions. And this is one of the real... Damage that was done from withdrawing from the trans-Pacific partnership—it
1: may be the biggest strategic mistake the United States has ever made.
0: So, talk more about that. Well, that's, uh, that's a pretty strong statement.
1: Well, you know, my, my view is: look, the 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 TPP was the way to get China to address a lot of what we're now trying to get them to address with tariffs. This is my frustration: is that we had the the vehicle <laughs> for doing it. It's very striking when I was speaking to Chinese officials at the time of what's now called famously their third plenum, which was you know one of the first economic-focused packages of, of policy sort of descriptions that Xi Jinping had put out there in his tenure. And it was a lot of market opening and access uh, measures and so on. And I you know was talking to senior people in Beijing at that time, and they said, why do you think we did this? It's because Japan got serious about TPP. In other words, they saw themselves increasingly as the proverbial child with his face pressed up against the glass watching it all go on around them and being locked out, right? And then it went away in a moment. And that's why they have not moved forward in the ensuing couple of years, in my opinion.
0: So craft, craft a U.S. policy here, right? If you were the senior director, what would your advice be to the president's national security team on what we should be doing?
1: Well, it's very challenging, but I, I think the first is take a break
0: <laughs> and have
1: a structured assessment of what are the many challenges from China that we're facing and how should we rack and stack those one of my concerns is that we there's a lot of things that the administration is identifying industrial policy forced technology transfer ip theft you know the economic stuff very very important from my point of view then there's what i call so-called influence operations the, the, the idea that China is somehow trying to subvert um, the rules-based global order and so on. And my, con- my concern is that, look, we have limited resources. We have you know a limited amount of things we can focus on at any one time. We have other stuff going on still, <laughs> Afghanistan, et cetera. And I worry that we're going to squander those scarce resources chasing ghosts because we have a playbook for that from the Cold War, right? It's familiar to us and so on. Whereas the the challenge, this technology economy challenge, that's new to us. We don't have a playbook for that. It's uncomfortable. And yet that's where the challenge really lies. So I guess my advice to the president would be let's focus on where the real threat and challenges that we need to focus on and monitor this other stuff. But we don't have to go whole hog on it. You know, one of the things that I find frustrating is we're spending, it seems to me as a government, an inordinate amount of time worrying about a Chinese base in Djibouti. Um, it is of concern. But we have bigger concerns than that in the relationship. So, in other words, as I mentioned earlier, that in the Chinese system, there's a guy whose screen is flashing, right? Well, our screen is flashing, too, with their activity. And we need to pick and choose which bits. We, we and there's another way on. to
0: look at the Djibouti base, right? And that is that we actually have interests, national security interests that overlap. Of course. So it actually would make sense for us to work together.
1: cases just, just As that, the
0: president talks about it, would make sense for us to work with Russia in certain ways absolutely. together,
1: right? Yeah. And, and, Michael, you just put your finger on it, which is... Our policy should be guided solely by the national interests of the United States, solely, which includes our values, by the way.
0: <laughs> Chris, we're running out of time, but let me just ask you one more question, which is, what do you think is the most important thing that U.S. policymakers on China need to keep in mind?
1: Mm. It's, that's a tough question, but I, I think probably it's that you've got to get the fundamentals correct, so it is a closed political system, and it's getting more closed. You know, arguably, one of the side effects of Xi Jinping's consolidation of power is that the number of people inside China who actually know what's going on has become quite small. They don't generally talk to foreigners. You know, one of my concerns is that, you know, we see, when we see these stories about him being under pressure and people, him being on his back foot and so on and so on, well, those are people generally who speak English, who are losing in the system, you know, there's winners and losers when a new guy they comes a into town. going to what they're saying? Correct. And I worry that we're missing a big swath of what's actually happening. And, and, and it matters because if you're basing your policy on the fact that Xi Jinping is weak, his political system is fragile, and if we just keep the pressure on, he's about to break, and that's not the
0: case, you're
1: mm-hmm. going to run into a brick wall pretty quickly.
0: How do you think future historians are going to look back at this moment? Mm.
1: I think they're definitely going to look back at at it as a moment of transition and of tension and a pivotal moment. There's no question that the relationship is going to go in one of two directions, and I think those two are readily identifiable. One is that, you know, we find some means to create a new equilibrium between the two of us, and I do think that's still possible if the two sides actually want to see that. And the other is that we are going to head toward this very distinctive future, where in fact we are finding ourselves in a situation where we view China increasingly as an unimplacable Cold War style enemy. I I think there's really, yeah, there's really only two choices. And we need on our side to figure out which one we believe is in the best interest of the United States and start executing that policy.
0: Chris, thank you very much for joining us. It's
1: my pleasure as always, Michael.
0: That was Chris Johnson. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.